Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Yes, it's time to chill out for an hour once again and delve into the life of another Australian sporting great on This Is Your Sporting Life. For Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives, wonderful to have your company. And today we celebrate the life of a man who certainly made his mark in the sport of basketball in Australia. He has one of the most famous names in Australian basketball. And when you look at his list of achievements, it's easy to understand why. Mark Bradkey is my guest in the studio. Mark, good to see you. Thank you. Thanks for the uh, invite. How are you travelling? I am travelling rather good. Uh, been very, very busy. Uh, time flies when you when you stop playing basketball. And uh, I suppose I was just actually thinking about it the other day. It's been nearly twelve years since I've retired, so uh, it doesn't seem that long ago. But at the same time, it's another lifetime ago. It really was. It's uh, you know life moves and changes, and uh, you sort of forget about what you used to do. So that 12 years has flown past. I suppose when you got to the end of your career, and this is something we discuss on the show a lot, that your career seems to go along while you're playing, while you're involved, and then you get to the end of it, and it just seems as though it's disappeared that quickly. Was it that way for you? Uh, most definitely. I um, I was a little bit different. When I started playing basketball, uh, I'd only been playing three years before I made the Olympic team. So I was in the schoolyard to move to the AIS for two years, and all of a sudden I'm in the Australian Olympic team for the 1988 Olympics. So... I was always the youngest and the most naive and all the rest. And before you know it, you're the elder statesman and then you've retired. So what you seem to be so busy caught up in your own world that uh, then you do sort of step back and say, wow, I'm one of the oldest guys here. And then all of a sudden it's finished. So uh, it does go by very quickly. And all the old people say it, uh, all the old players, <laughs> but it is very, very true. You're still involved in basketball. You're involved with the boomers at the moment. Is Australian basketball going through another golden era with all of the top players that we've got on the world stage and the fact that things seem to be happening with the local league again? Are we seeing a rejuvenation after a a flat period for a while? I think we're definitely seeing the rejuvenation in the NBL uh, with the the level of uh, commitment from Larry Kesselman and uh, the uh, the NBL is definitely growing again, which is fantastic. Australia's always produced so many great players. Um, we have a really good junior system here in Australia, and it's uh, 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 other countries around the world actually come here and sort of witness what we're doing with our junior programs. So junior basketball's always been strong. We always have got plenty of young kids who develop from here who go on to play college basketball, who play the NBA, we see that, but there's a lot of guys who play in Europe and also uh, both in, in the NBL. So we're always producing a lot of very, very good players. I know for a fact that um, basketball is popular because when I was a kid, I played basketball at the old Albert Park Centre. 
but it was in the 80s where it really took hold here, and you were part of that era. I've asked this question to Andrew Gaze and to Larry Sengstock. Was pay television one of the things that actually hurt Australian basketball? Because we never saw much of the NBA, and then all of a sudden we saw it every week, and we're comparing apples and oranges, if you like. Yeah, I, I, look, there's a couple of things. Um there's a thing right here in front of us called a mobile phone. Yes. We get everything on there. Yeah. Now, back when we started playing, you're talking about 80s and 90s, no internet, no uh, no Google, no YouTube, no, you know, Twitter or anything. So we had to sort of make do what we had. You know, we'd get a game now and then at the NBA, but it'll be two, three, four months late, things like that. So everything now is so instant. So for a for a fan of basketball, our season runs the same time as the European season and the NBA season. So if i got young kids, or which I do, and we sit down, you say, well, do I watch LeBron James or do I watch what's happening in Europe or do I watch what's happening in Australia? So you try to support your local product as well, but you have so much on offer. And I think that's one of the biggest um, the hurdles that um, any sport, a global sport has because you have so much competition. So in some ways, I'd like to see, because we changed, we're worried about the AFL many years ago because, you know, I had to head to the AFL, let's go to summer. I'd actually like to see it go back to winter to um, complement the AFL. You know, it's a little side thing. You can do uh, different things. Some football fans aren't necessarily going to go to basketball and basketball may not go to football. But at the same time, I remember doing both on some nights. On, uh, uh, I remember on a winter's nights, um, you go and watch the first half of basketball, thinking, oh, it's a bit slow. Let's go across the MCG, watch a quarter or, or, or watch the second half over there. And I did that a couple of times. So that was awesome to be able to do that. Um, so we have so many options now. And you see the way everything's getting shorter and shorter. People's attention spans are very short. So I sort of blame those sort of things as why the NBA will dip, rather than just saying pay TV. It's just we have access to so much. Yeah, and you talked about the ability to get that clean air. That's something that the A-League has been looking for for quite a while, just trying to find their niche away from the sports that just naturally capture the attention of the majority of the population. Yeah, and that had the same issue too with the EPL and the European leagues. You, you never got to find clean air here, especially in Melbourne. You know, AFL dominates the city, um, which is fine. So you got to try and find, okay, what can I capture? How do I embrace um, the basketball or the basketball culture? Or is it uh, encouraging the juniors through? What's the pathway? There's a lot of different directions that they try to take. Um, obviously, fan engagement um, I'm not a horse person. I know you, you call the races all the time. Yeah. But if I go to the Melbourne Cup and I walk past the stables, I think, oh, there's a horse there. I'll follow that a little bit more. So if you can get that interaction between a player and a fan or if it's going to a school or if it's um, being on radio or TV, whatever it is, if they feel like they know that person or that horse or what that sport a little bit better, I think you have a better engagement. So it's about trying to, to capture that. You know, you don't want to distance yourself too much. Try to get into the local community. One thing that a couple of people have said to me about the local product, Mark, is that they really enjoy the experience. When they go to an NBL game, it is a great experience. But the comment that I keep on getting is it's very American. It's it's taken from the American model. Is there something that we can do to localise the product and take it a little bit away from cloning the American experience? Um a little well, you could you could try and change it a little as far as the um the off-court activities, yeah, but it is a uh, uh, the game was developed in America, and uh, 
it is played all around the world, but it is still, I suppose, an American game. It's a street game. It's a uh, the ability to go to your local hoop if you're in the States or in here and get everyone playing with one ball, one hoop. You can play by yourself. You can play with 10 people. You can play with 20. It doesn't matter. So these are some of the sports that um, if you look at soccer and baseball and uh, basketball, they're played right around the world. And you don't need much equipment, and you just go and play. So these are the beauties of the sport. So you don't want to try and change it too much. You know, we, we see a lot in the AFL about rule changes. You know, basketball, soccer, baseball don't really have rule changes because there are so many games played all around the world that it's been refined down to a style and a, a play. So I wouldn't like to see the uh, Australian model try to re, re-engineer the sport into an Australian model. Um, but you, I, I suppose if you wanted to, you could try to have more of a um, an Australian flavour to the um, things that happen outside of the game. But at the same time, we've got, you know, four 10-minute quarters. We're pretty tight. It fits into a TV product. It's uh, Everyone's close to the, atmos- uh, to the court, the atmosphere. Um, I think fan people probably like having a bit of music sometimes or having some cheerleaders or having half-court shootouts or having the kiss cam, uh, little things like that. It sort of creates a, a, a just a little bit different and um, why not try and embrace that, you know? Um, I don't think people would turn off a lot if they say, oh, it's not Australian enough, you know, because like I said, you go to Europe if you go to Europe and you watch basketball there, fanatical, they're lighting flares and beating drums and, <laughs> and, and all that. Well, do you want to go to that extreme? Do you want to go? But it's all about passion. It's a much slower game in Europe. You're not allowed to have the fast breaks. We try to have a bit more up-tempo in our game. But each league's different. If you go to the uh, the leagues in, in Asia, they're more long-distance shooting, quick, up and down. Europe's grind it out, slowed it. You know, USA is uh, athletic, really strong. Ours is a bit of a blend of everything. So we have athleticism, we have great shooters, we can use our quickness. So I think we're a good blend. Speaking of that fanaticism and that fan engagement, you played at a time where the game here was as big as it's ever been and there were live telecasts of matches. Rod Laver Arena would be packed out with 15,000 people. Do we aspire to that again or do we realise that perhaps those days are not quite going to come again and look at making it a bit more of a boutique experience with the stadium? I think the boutique, actually, the, the smaller stadiums is the way it all started. Yeah. You know, back in the uh, the late 80s, early 90s, there was the smaller stadiums which were really good. It was an in-demand ticket. You know, I know when I first started playing for the Adelaide 36s at Apollo Stadium, it was probably... Two, two and a half thousand seats. They'd try and squeeze three in there, three and a half, so it'd be standing room only. Um, some of the best memories are playing in Wollongong at the Snake Pit and the bar was right behind the basket. So in the second <laughs> half, you'd always shoot that in and they were, they were swinging things off there and they were jumping up and down as you're shooting foul shots. They were, that was great. So I was in um, Bendigo last week when the uh, Boomers played up there and that's a 4,000 seat stadium. And like, I was walking, I was like, wow, this feels really good. It's really intimate. The fans are right on the court. Um, there's not so much corporate box sort of thing. It's just fans watching basketball game. Um, 4,000, you know, if you had a 6,000 stat in, in Melbourne, I think that'd be ideal, personally. That's what I like. Uh, Wollongong's got a 6,000 seat stadium, I think it is, right on the ocean. And it, the, the stands are so steep. And also what I like when I play it, I want to have the retractable seating so it doesn't look that flash. Well, not sorry, I shouldn't say that flash. But you pull it back so you've got three basketball courts. But when you pull it down to have one basketball court, 
when you have those retractable stands, when people jump up and down, it echoes through the whole stadium. So mm. when you get it really nice and plush with the carpet and the nice soft seats, it doesn't have the same atmosphere. You like the little bit, uh, a little bit of a uh, harder edge to it, and that's when the place is pumping. So you know it's loud, and if you're the opposing team, you walk in there, you're like, you know what, it's going to be on tonight. So uh, that brings that other element that you have. So is there a place like that that exists at the moment that we could remodel or does it need to be built from the ground up? Um, Adelaide had a, Adelaide's got a really good stadium there. They, they built their three courts, once again, retractable seating, Wollongong's like that. Um, what about in Melbourne? Uh, well, they're talking about the uh, refurbishment of the State Basketball Centre at uh, One Turner. So Do you need something in the city, though, Mark? Because... Uh, when you look at the Adelaide Oval and what mm. the Adelaide Oval and the redevelopment has done because of its proximity, the same with the stadium in Perth, and I know we're talking about AFL here yeah. predominantly, yep. but do you need something in the heart of the city rather than in the the outer suburbs? Um, well, we've got that with Hisense and uh, Margaret Court Arena and things like that. I actually like it to see it at a Daniel or a one turner out because – that is the the heartland of basketball, junior basketball in in, in Victoria, and a little bit easy, easier access, East Link or Southeastern or whatever you're going through there, um, and it's a bit more. Uh, I don't know. I'd like to be able to see if you're a local club there that you can might the kids who are playing there Monday to Friday domestic basketball, they might see their stars walking into practice or there's a poster up there, or they do a clinic, or they do something like that. I see that interaction really important. We're talking about it before, about having yeah. the, um, seeing the horse that, you know, all of a sudden, you, or a jockey you like or something. I think if you have that, if you go to the city and it's only, you only go there for the one event, you don't engage as much. So if if you were at Daniel Basketball Stadium and there was a, a team playing there, I think the people would see them all the time. There might be a bar after the game that the players have to go back to, or um, and just have a social function with them. Just have a chat with them. It can be five minutes. I think that's what engages the people. Basketball doesn't get a lot of front page headlines, but it got one a couple of months ago with that infamous incident in the Philippines. Mm. What was your take on that? Um, that was uh, I'm just taking over the team leader, manager of the Australian basketball team. I got asked a little while ago. Uh, by an old friend of mine, Luke Longley. He said, yeah, come away, it'll be fun. We'll have a few beers, you know, do a few things. So um, my first experience was the uh, the all-in brawl in Manila. So uh, to set the scene, it's a, a 55,000-seat stadium we're playing in. So we go to Manila. We played in Japan three days earlier, which we lost. Uh, it was our first loss in the World Qualifying uh, Cup qualifying. So we get to the Philippines, and it's, um, the, the players are, um, well, the coach is a little bit on edge because he's lost a game. So anyway, we're training and all that, and the game comes around. And so the players are trying to rectify their performance from Japan. And uh, we're playing good, solid basketball. Nothing outlandish there. But um, uh, the game, uh, there was a, lot, a fair bit of niggle between a, a couple of players trash-talking, which always happens. Basketballers are good trash-talkers, not very good fighters. So I played basketball for 20 years, and I didn't see too many punches thrown and very few landed. So we're good trash-talkers. Um, like I said, chest bumps, things like that. So when this incident started to pop up, um, we were, were, were shocked on the court. You know, you see what's going on. So there was a lot of... Um, Pushing and shoving and elbows being and and maybe a, maybe a, a punch or two thrown from either side, um, so we were just as much to blame as them. You know, it was back and forth both ways. Um, but Daniel Kickett 
and Thonmaker. Um, Daniel Kick was about 6'10". Uh, guy, he was sort of running backwards down the sideline. So watching him, he was getting away from the players. Thon Maker, seven foot one, Sudanese, with a bright yellow singlet. So he's a flash running on the side. So all their attention was drawn to these two guys running on the side of the court because it's soon to be calming down a little bit. So our attention was at the half court, and they seemed to be under control. So we thought, okay, there's been a push and shove. It's been twenty seconds of chaos, but it looks like it's going to be okay. So was my first role as team manager. I'm saying, boys, stay on the bench. You know, you're not allowed to leave the, the, the court, uh, the side of the bench. You can't enter the court. It's about etiquette. It's about protocol. It's about, you know, breaking the rules. You've got to stay in there. So as we sort of see these guys sort of calming down, they've sort of separated. Then all of a sudden, people start running at the other basket, at the opposite end of us. And obviously, that's where Chris Goulding was uh, was on the ground getting, um, uh, uh yeah, not the best treatment by, uh, as we find out, uh, players off the bench uh, of the other team. Uh, coaches were involved. There was parents involved. Uh, so what happens on the, on a court or on a, a, a soccer field or a football over or whatever, what happens between the, between the lines is with the, with the players. And generally they sort it out. There's not a whole lot. And so once it breaks over that line and all of a sudden people start getting involved, it gets very tense. And, and, and that's where it breaks away and breaks down and there's chaos. So when this all happens, the players are really fired up. So I'm trying to say, you can't go, you must stay here. Because I'm thinking it was a 55,000 seat stadium. There's probably about 20, 25,000 people there. So it looked quite empty, but there's still a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And there's probably 20 Australians, 30 Australians there. But you could just feel the, the, the tension in the air growing every second. So... Once um, Luke Longley and our equipment manager, Junior, uh, separated the people, we got Golding back, we got Sobey back, and, and we got them on the bench. There was still so much hostility in the air. So I was trying to tell the boys and all the coaches and I would say, hey, just stay here. Don't show any emotion to the crowd because the crowd was getting really wild up. So we said, look, just stay here. Don't look at the TV cameras. Don't look at the crowd. Sit here, show no emotion. But they wanted to, we got to get those guys. So no, no, stay still. So anyway, they sort of started calming down, and the referees at this stage had disappeared. They left the court, and we there was so we sort of there was chaos for a while. So um, I remember I was standing alongside Thon, and I was he goes, "This is crazy," and we're talking about it. And I said, "Mate, just you know, let's just let the referees decide what's going to go on." Like I said, don't show anything. And all of a sudden, they had these massive TV screens there on the, on this, and they and uh, they flashed up Thon. And all, the whole crowd started booing. He goes, what are they booing me for? And I'm like, Thon, they're not booing you. They're booing the singlet. So don't worry. They're just not you personally. Then the producer went from Thon to the Philippine team and showed them. So the crowd cheered. And so then they flashed it back to another Australian player. And they started booing. So I was going back as a force. So I was like, I quickly left. I said, it went over to somebody. I said, you got to tell the producer. you got to stop this because this is just not on. He's inciting the crowd. Uh, which they did. They just showed a long shot. And then... For about another 10 minutes, was really the, the heat was in the air and the players were like, let's go back to the locker room, let's get out of here. And I was like, you know what? I think the best thing is to stay on the court because you're showing that you're calm, that you're not running and hiding. And if you go behind the stands, you don't know what's going to happen. So we stayed out there and it was probably another half an hour, but um, the energy came out of the crowd and then um, the four players got ejected. So I escorted them off the court and then uh, the game was, the day I think lost seven players, seven or eight players. So uh, it sort of became a bit of a farce in the end, but uh, we ended up winning the game because they only had 
uh, they had one player left. So you had to be able to pass the ball in. They had two players for a while. But they, the last few guys were just sort of token fouls just to finish the game. So it was, it was an official result. But it was, uh, it was, it was a, a very tense, interesting time. We get back to the locker room. We're like, what the hell's going on here? We didn't know. The Australian Embassy came along. Um, we had a lot of support from them. They suggested that we stay in another hotel. So we're like, nah, come on, this is basketball. We're all right. You know, we'll sort it out. And they're like, no, no, look, you know, it'll be safer if you move. So we're trying to arrange hotels at 11 o'clock at night in the Philippines. And then we're waiting for the stadium to clear so we can get out because anybody who's been to the Philippines know the traffic's chaos anyway as well. So we're trying to do this and making sure the stadium's clear so we can get out. We get them back to the hotel. This hotel, we didn't know where we were going. We went into the back door. We gave them a key each. We worked out what room they were in. Sent the players back there. And then the support staff, the doctors and physios and masseurs and myself, we went through the bus and said, okay, what room are you in? Where's your passport? What's your code? Are you safe? What's valuable? We went back and we packed up the whole hotel for the rest of the team. And then we went back to our new hotel and we dropped it off at about 4.35 in the morning and then... Uh, up again at six and the phone was had a million messages on there and emails mm. on what we're going to do, how we're getting out, what we're doing. You know, so it was a, uh, it was a little bit stressful, but it was, uh, yeah, something I don't want it to happen again and it will never happen again. It was just one of those things. And like I said, basketballs are very good fighters. <laughs> Why will it never happen again? What did you learn from that? Because it's all very well. When you're caught up in the moment, you're logistically trying to get things yeah. done. Yeah. But then there's a post-mortem afterwards. What did Australian basketball as a collective learn from that incident? Well, we're still learning. We're still, even the last trip, we're still learning. And we've got people coming away and, and, and uh, studying what we're doing, how it's run. Um, I think it's not just us. I think it's FIBA. It's the world basketball. It's a new qualifying system. So instead of we, – we're going to different places all the time. We were just in um, uh, Qatar, in Doha, two weeks ago. Uh, and then we come back and we play in Bendigo. The next one, both in Australia. The one after that, we're in Kazakhstan and Iran. And you see all the news on the, on the, in the last two days about what's going on in Iran as well. So it's an ongoing evolution the way we've – we as Basketball Australia have got to learn about – the procedures and and how FIBA conducted and and you know we get asked now well do you contact the embassy before you leave do you know all this do you need a backup hotels do you have this do you know do you allow the boys to use Wi-Fi in the rooms do you do you not book them under their own names do you have aliases do you you know all these things which are sort of beyond sport and now you think well do we have to do this and what's going to happen when the NBA players are back what's going to happen when Ben Simmons comes back are mm. we going to have to have security guards around him all the time. I hope it doesn't get to that. That's why I say I don't think it'll come to that. But what's world sport happening? I don't know. Really interesting to get your insights on basketball as a whole. But when we come back on the other side of the break, I want to talk about you. And I want to talk about where it all began for you and that wonderful career that you had, which took you to so many honours in the NBL and took you around the world playing. Mark Bradkey is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And we'll have more with Mark on the other side of the break. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hope you're enjoying our chat with Mark Bradkey on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. All right, Mark, let's go back to where it all began. You were born in South Australia. Correct. A lot of South Australians. Uh, my wife sort of says, there's another one out there. There's a few of us. That, um, 
Yeah, no, I was, uh, yeah, born and sort of spent my uh, primary school years in South Australia, so didn't play basketball. I was all footy and cricket. My father played football for uh, North Adelaide as well as in the country. So I was just footy and cricket and loved it all that. But uh, um, in my beginning of my high school years, we moved to Queensland and uh, there was no footy. Well, I tried one year, but it was very, very, very limited. So uh Spent a bit of time skateboarding and windsurfing and all that as a teenager. And then I saw um, in the 84 Olympics, I was watching it on TV and I saw basketball. And I thought, well, I'm six foot eight, six nine. Maybe I should try this sport out. Um, and just started playing from there. So I happened to be just coincide that I moved back to Adelaide in 1985 with the family. Um, and had a trial game with North Adelaide under-17s or something. And a trial with the basketball club, the Norlunga Tigers, um, on the same day. And I don't think I got too many touches on the footy and I had a bit better go on the basketball. So I sort of, that day was sort of like, oh, which way do I go? And I chose basketball. So I was sort of like that. Just before we go on with the basketball thing, mm. where did you play when you were playing footy? Because you're, you're just a bit too big to be a man and just a little bit too small to be a mountain. So you would have been hard to shift. Uh, well, when I was... Um, um, when I was trying to play in Queensland, I'd, we'd only get about nine or ten players to the team, so we'd stack the back line, then have a centre-half forward and a full forward, so there'd be no wings, no centre-half forward, yeah. uh, flanks and all that. So I'd go on the ruck, um, and I'd just try to grab it and take a few steps and kick as long as I could. So we got smashed all the time, so I was pretty demoralising. But uh, no, I was sort of a you know, forward slash ruckman, sort of, you know, when you're young, you just try to do, do it all. Yeah, we might talk about footy a little bit later on because I think the 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 bloodlines might have just uh, trickled down a little bit football wise. But mm. we'll talk about that towards the end of the program. So, who's the first one to identify the fact that Mark Bradkey has got what it takes to go to the top of the leagues in Australia in particular? There was a um, the first one who uh, there was a um, okay. I'm talking yeah, 1985 here. So it's a long time ago. Uh, Brendan Flynn, who was, I believe, the Australian women's coach at the time. Um, brother, uh, no, not brother, um, uh, knew of another person called Phil Smythe, but not, oh, yes. not the general Phil Smythe, another one right in on. the basketball circles. Okay. And he suggested I try it with Norlunga Tigers, which is a state league basketball team in South Australia. So I was sort of, I went there and I started playing junior. Brendan Flynn was tied up with North Adelaide, sorry. So he was with the North Adelaide uh, Football Club, and he suggested I go to this Phil Smythe with the basketball. So I was sort of from there. Um, yeah, so I started playing, and I, I sort of played under-18s and seniors in my first year. So I was playing state league in the in the, in the men's and the basketball and in the under-18s. So it was sort of like a real rush. I, I hadn't played at all. I played at schoolyard. It was lunchtime. I didn't never been to a training session, never did anything. So I was very raw. I was about 6'9". Um, must have been a good athlete, must have been able to catch the ball. I don't know. I did something right. So I, I sort of – and I just grew from there. And I made the under-18 state team that year, my first year playing. And I was playing in the state men's comp, which was really good because we had some really good players. Uh, all the, um, the imports and the best players for the 36ers played in the state league on a Wednesday night in Adelaide. So I get, got to play against these people all the time as, you know, someone who's been playing four or five months. Um, and then I made, you know, uh, then, I, then I, I sort of made a couple of teams and then I got offered to go to the Australian Institute of Sport with 
the other Phil Smythe, yeah. <laughs> the the, uh, the general, uh, and Pat Hunt. So I spent two years in Canberra. Um, Adrian Hurley was there also. So yeah. I went from doing nothing to pretty intense in Adelaide to going to Canberra and moving out of home when you're 16 years of age uh, into a new sport, a new world. So I was very young and naive. I didn't know what basketball on the world stage was. I wasn't as though like I was someone who spent 15 years trying to achieve my goal of making the Olympics. So I was... I was young there, but we played, we had some. Luke Longley was at the Australian Institute of Sport then. Andrew Vlahoff was there. Shane Hill was there. So we had some people. That, so my peers were end up working very very good players, um, good mates as well. And then we started playing around the world, and we played against Yugoslavia at the time, who had people like Vlade Divac, who had a great career in the Lakers and whatnot, and Tony Kukoc, who was in the Chicago Bulls, and Dino Raja, who got um, voted into the NBA uh, Hall of Fame the other day. So we had those guys competing against all the time, and we went on tours to Europe and all that. So I was really lucky to fall into a really good bunch of guys and play against all these people internationally all the time. So... So you've gone from nothing to juniors to all of a sudden making the Australian Olympic team. So, and, and, I've, and I'm a little bit amazed, well, uh, not a little, a lot amazed because Adrian Hurley was the head coach in um, 1988. So he selected three 18-year-olds who had never played in the NBL uh, prior to that year. I was the only one who was playing in the NBL. The other two, Longley and Vlahoff, were in the States. So to select three 18-year-olds for an Olympic campaign, mm. unheard of. And... Big risk, big gamble, but obviously I went to four Olympics, Vlahov went to four Olympics, Longley went to three. He missed one with injury. So it worked out really well, but like I said, had no concept of the Olympic Games, didn't know what the opening ceremony was. Oh, we got to go and open. Okay, well, what do you do? You just walk around and you sit down and have a rest. Okay, no worries. <laughs> had no concept of anything. And yeah, we're playing against um, the Russians and the Americans. We played against the USA for the uh, bronze medal game. Um, we finished fourth. Uh, yeah. We did that too many times. But so, so naive and yet, yeah, it's such an awesome experience. Do you reckon that naivety stood you in good stead? Because Absolutely. you said that it wasn't a burning passion for you. For a lot of young fellas, it would have been. Hmm. But the fact that, you know, it just sort of evolved around you, did that help you? Oh, without a doubt. Like I said, there wasn't, the older you get, the more nervous you get, I yeah. think, because you realise what the consequences are. Back then, it was like, oh, another game. Who are we playing? Spain, are they any good? I don't know. Let's go. And like I said, pre-internet, pre, you know, you, the scouting was a lot different. The uh, training session, everything was new. And so I didn't, I've never really even watched myself on video, to be honest. So you just went out there and played. You didn't know what you did or didn't do that well. You just went out and tried as hard as you could every time. So, um, yeah, being naive, I think, was a massive uh, asset. So all of this stuff's evolving around you. You go to your first Olympics. You have a fantastic experience, as you said, finish fourth, come back to the Adelaide 36ers. But things were about to change, so it was going to go from Adelaide to Melbourne. There was a bit of angst at that time, was there not, about how you actually went from Adelaide to Melbourne? Yeah, um, I spent um, five years in Adelaide. So um, uh, leading into the 1992 Olympics, obviously I'd gone from being a bench player in Adelaide to starting... um, and, you know, sort of dominating my position in the game. And then in, uh, but right before the Olympics, I got offered to go and play in Spain. So I sort of finished, so they knew that I wasn't, so the Olympics were in sort of mid-season. So I knew that I was going to have my last game before the Olympics and I was building up and I actually had my best game 
in the NBL. As a 22-year-old, I had 43 points and 25 rebounds in my final mm. game. So, good game. And you could say that, yeah. Good, yeah, good game. So, um, so then I went off to the Olympics. And then I, after that, we finished sixth, unfortunately. Um, but then we moved on. Then I went and played in Spain for a while. And uh, I was there only for uh, five months or so. But then um, had an opportunity to come back. So, instead of going to Adelaide, I decided, let's come to Melbourne. So... It might have been small, insignificant little things looking back now, but I just thought I needed a change. So I came across to Melbourne. Um, I was probably leaning more towards Perth, but at that time, Melbourne had five NBL teams. And so I'm thinking, oh, if you play in Perth, you've got three and a half, four-hour flight every second week, whereas, which I don't know how people like Aaron Sanderlands and Pavlich and all these yeah. guys continue to play for so long. Or you come to Melbourne, you've got five teams of Melbourne and, you know, you see you got all these games here. So I decided on Melbourne, but uh, yeah, I had a fair bit of angst from the people in Adelaide. So even now I went last year and did a uh, speaking engagement. So I was still getting booed going up oh, to the, really? uh, all in good humor. Most of the people I knew. They got but, good um, memories over there. Oh, they, they do. Yes. And most of the people are booing have no idea what they're doing, but <laughs> I don't mind that. And I think sport likes heroes and villains. Yeah. You don't want it all one vanilla. You, you wanted a little bit of uh, spice and, uh, um, you know, so I was more than happy to uh, accept that role. You know, the last game we got cheered, you know, cheered and cheered off the court virtually. Yeah. And then from then on, I was, you know, hated, you know, most hated guy in basketball in Australia, South Australia. So, but, I, you know, um, it sort of gave me extra motivation. I said, well, I've got to be up for this game because they're going to want me to fail. So it actually pushed me. Uh, a lot harder when I did play in Adelaide. Was there another motivating factor for you to come to Melbourne? Was it a, a tall, blonde tennis player at the time? Uh, not really. No, that was a little bit after I got here. But um, no, um, yeah, my wife um, now, uh, she was obviously in Melbourne. So uh, it wasn't the uh, the factor. It was a, a looking at changing. But uh, yeah, we did um, um, hook up not long after that. So uh it's been, I think, 25 years nearly now. So, uh, yeah, we got, uh, yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about Nicole and the family when we get towards the end of our chat. We'll take a break now, Mark, and then we'll talk about those glory days at the Tigers and those full stadiums and that magnificent atmosphere and that wonderful team. Mark Bradkey, we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. This is your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. Stay with us. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Mark Bradkey on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. So you find yourself crossing the border, you come to Melbourne, you come to this famed organisation, the Melbourne Tigers, with the names of Gaze, Senior and Junior. Leonard Copeland's there. Great team, great atmosphere, great time to be there, I guess. It really was. It was... um it's good to have uh, crosstown rivals. It's good to have that competition, and um, Melbourne had that at the time. We had the uh, South East Melbourne Magic. Uh, we had North Melbourne Giants. So we had a really good, tough competition right here in our own backyard. And, uh, you know, we, I, I stepped into um, uh, an established team that had uh, Andrew Gaze, obviously, Leonard Copeland, Dave Simmons was there, Robert Sibley. Uh, Warwick Giddy. So we had a, there was a core group there, and which continued on for quite some time. And um, uh, good quality people, good fun to be around. Um, uh, Lindsay was um, uh, uh, a, a great coach. Uh, a little bit, uh, you know, he did it his way, which wasn't 
other coaches wouldn't have liked it. Um, he was all about uh, trying to entertain. He has, we wanted to win, but don't win ugly necessarily. Try and win and put on a show and uh, entertain and, and things like that. So Not many coaches would say that, Mark, no. because winning is everything when you're a coach. Oh, he still wanted to win 100%. Yeah. It helps when you got some talent there. You know, Andrew could sort of put it in wherever he wanted to, and Coates was a freak. And uh, Goes uh, alley-oop to Copeland. Yeah, we saw that yeah exactly. So it's easy to say that when you have – you've got something to back it up. Yeah. And like Andrew says, you can't have a circus without any animals. So we had the animals there, and we refined our our, our product, our, our our offenses and our systems. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a lot easier um, – when you have um, when you're on a roll, it's very easy. When you have self doubt, it's always a lot harder. So we had a couple of times where we struggled a bit, but when we're on a roll, we felt like we could we just turn it on. We didn't worry about the other team; we worried about ourselves. If we stick to our 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 task, our procedures, we'll be fine. And and it really did pay off that way for a long time. Um, uh, should we have won a little bit more, maybe uh, in the finals? We only won two championships with the Tigers, but then again. There were 16 teams in the league back then. Um, uh, it, it, was, it was hard to win. It was really hard to win. What was your proudest moment with the Tigers? Because success, one of those championships came very early for you. Yeah, in my first year, we yeah. won it. We, we won over in Perth. Um, I think that was the one that sticks out the most because it was the first um, for myself, for the first for the Tigers and obviously Andrew and Lindsay, and it meant so much to them. We won over in Perth, which we'd never won in Perth. Um, uh, we started off... Um, three and nine, maybe three wins, nine losses, or three and six for the first nine games. People are saying we're no good and all that. So it was, you know, slow start, good, good build, good finish. So that was probably the most satisfying, just because of of where we came and how we how we started off. Um, but then you spend the next 13, 14 years together seeing each other. And so everything, every little milestone, you know, is, is, is sweet as well. So uh, sometimes the greatest games, and people, you know, they're not that significant, but they were real memorable moments. But uh, the first one in 93 was the best. Now, I want you to definitively answer a question that has been asked a lot, and you're in a position to answer it. Can, in fact, Andrew Guys dunk the basketball? Um, 100% not now, but I couldn't do it either. But uh, no, actually, Andrew had a, um, he could get up, pick and choose his moments. When you stand at halfway, calling for the ball all the time, eventually every dog will have his day and he'll get it done. <laughs> but um, no, we played in Geelong one time and he actually threw a very big dunk down on an American import who did play in the NBA and threw it right on his head. And we celebrated the whole way back. And I think they scored. We didn't even know. We were just too busy saying, hey, great job, Drew. You know, it didn't happen very often. So, uh, no, he was a very good passer for the alley-oops. And, and, the, and uh, he was a good shooter. But uh, dunking probably wasn't high on his, uh, uh, on his list of achievements. And the other thing was, as big as the game was, he was still the face of basketball in Australia. His time when he went to Seton yep. Hall, yep. he was the public face of basketball. Yep. And without him... The game wouldn't have enjoyed the profile it did at that time. One hundred percent, and and, I, and in some ways he probably still is a face of basketball now. So yeah. I'd like, um, and I'm sure he'd like that to be moving more away from him. But uh, you know, there was Michael Jordan in the US, and there was Andrew Gaze here, and he um, was a great uh, personality. He spoke well. He always had a smile on his face. Maybe not at training. Maybe he's a little <laughs> bit different at training. Maybe he's a little bit more hostile, which is fine. Has you know? he got enough mongrel in him to be a coach? 
yeah, he, he's, he's, his passion and his desire for basketball is unmatched. You know, he, he loves the game. Um, coaching's a tough gig, though. You know, it's a, it's a tough gig. You know, he's uh, he has his good moments and his bad, like all coaches do. But Andrew wears his heart on his sleeve. So if you ever see him now, um, you know, the hair's messed up and the sh- Jackets up over here and the ties to one side. <laughs> he lives every moment, and uh, sometimes you've got to be a good poker player. I don't know if he'd be a very good poker player because you see what he's got in his hand all the time. It was a wonderful time. You talked about going to Spain. Um, you went to other places around the world. I think you went to Greece at one stage, didn't you? Yeah, I spent a little bit of time in Greece as well. Um, didn't have a very long or, or, or distinguished career in Europe, but I, I went to a couple of places. And uh, when I was in Greece, I was at uh, Olympiakos, which is one of the biggest clubs in Europe. They, they, they pride themselves on having a, a, a sporting team in every competition through Europe. Um, Interesting, you know. We uh, only played a couple of games. We got injured. I, I tore my calf, and I was trying to come back a bit. And uh, good, interesting, uh, or bad, interesting? Uh, I'd say interesting. It was um, everything seemed to be uh, tomorrow. The Greek way was, oh, "It'll happen mm. tomorrow." But I don't know if tomorrow actually came. A lot of times, you sort of waited for it. So uh, interesting effects there. And then we sort of. My last game we played, I, they asked me to go to. They said, "Oh, I told, I went to the coach. I said, look, mate, I'm, I'm 28. I know what goes on. You're under pressure. You've got to sack someone to keep your job. If you need for me to go, just let me know. And I, no hard feelings. I understand. Then I'll, I can go back to Australia and I'll play straight away. The coach said, you know, we're ready to go. And I knew the season was starting back here, uh, still in the swing here. So he goes, oh, okay, thanks. No, no, we're not going to do that. Then a day later he comes, you know what, maybe we should, you know. I said, hey, fine, I'm injured, you know. So he goes, oh, can you play one more game? I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to play a game. So I wasn't, I was only about 60%, but um, we had to go to play in Moscow. So we played CSKA Moscow and we're Olympiacos. It's a European Cup game. So we get there and I play a few minutes, nothing spectacular. I think they win. Um, and anyway, after the game, he goes, oh, can you play one more? I said, no, no, mate. I said, one. Well, let's leave it there. You know, you can do your thing. I'll do my thing. But on the way back on the bus, everyone started listening to the radio. There was a lot of Americans and there was all people from different parts. But that's when the um, the siege took place in the theatre. You remember okay. that? They, yeah. they gassed all the, yeah. uh, the people in the theatre. So we were in Moscow that night. So we got back to the room and you're sitting in the hotel and you're watching CNN and you're watching this siege unfold and it's only a couple of kilometres away. Mm. And so we had 10,000 people at our basketball game, you know, two or three k's away from where the siege took place. So I sort of hit home thinking, well, if they really wanted to, they could have come and got us or they got a, a much easier target, obviously, a few hundred people in a, in a, in a theatre. So, um, yeah, that was my last game there. And then I sort of packed my bags and came home and uh, got back into it again. One other place you played, we probably should touch on, um, America, yep. uh, the NBA. Philadelphia 76ers, where Ben Simmons is these days. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? Uh, that was interesting as well. I seem to have a lot of interesting... Um, <laughs> You know, I'd much rather be there now with Brett Brown as the head coach, who, yeah. who spent time here with the North Melbourne Giants, obviously, and the Australian team. Um, we had a guy called Alan Iverson. It was his first year. So he um, was the rookie, um, a little bit loose. Um, we had a first-year coach. So that wasn't a good blend. So there wasn't uh, there wasn't a lot of direction or discipline. Um, we had another guy called Derek Coleman, who was known as the coach killer, who'd always get all the coaches fired. So we had sort of these hotheads and a rookie coach, and the coach would say, pass the ball to the wing and cut through, and they'd roll along the ground and laugh and walk through, and you're like, is this real? Is this what's going on? So 
Hensby only won 16 games out of 82. Um, yeah, so it wasn't the best environment. And even the assistant coaches would come up to me and says at training, said, look, this is not a normal NBA team. You've got to understand it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a very unusual environment. So I don't blame Alan Iverson. I sort of blame the environment because what he was, he was a 19-year-old kid who had spent time in college, uh, to, in, um, in jail for a race-related um, uh, fight. So he was a 19-year-old who was a number one draft pick. Who They gave him lots of money. Everyone was giving him money, Reebok and all this. And he was just testing the boundaries. And I could see there was no boundaries. There was no elder statesman on the team telling him what to do. I couldn't do it. I'm, a, I'm Australian. I had no idea where Australia was. I think I spoke to my coach three times in 82 games. So he, he didn't really have a lot of idea. But... Um, yeah, so he was in an environment where he was testing it and he just there was no boundary. He could do what he want. I know we'd take we'd have private plane, so we'd take off and he'd take his seatboard off and he'd walk it up and down the aisle as we take off. And no one would say anything. And just sort of sitting there thinking, It's not really my spot to say anything, you know. Um yeah, but no one did. And so, um I think it hurt him long term, the way his career panned out. But um it wasn't a great place to be, um, but had some great experiences. And I, I played against Luke and the Chicago Bulls in Chicago. Yeah, um, I got a great photo. I had some friends in the stands, and I got. A, I remember I was standing on the side. There was, uh, one of our Alan Iverson got fouled, so he's at the foul line. So I'm there, and I didn't play many minutes. So I'm on the court, and all of a sudden I'm standing alongside of Luke. I'm thinking, how cool is this? this? Is pretty good, you know. Luke's down. I turn around, and it's Michael Jordan on the other side. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I got Luke, and I got Jordan. Um, and then someone was in the stand, had the old camera. They took a photo, so you got, you know, there's three of us with our backs to there, and uh, so that was a nice little experience. Like I wasn't out there long, but um, I got a photo to prove it. Well, indeed. Now, the last part of your journey was with Brisbane. Yep. What experience was that like after being in such a powerhouse team, such a, um, a publicity team, if you like, with Melbourne? Yeah. Was Brisbane a similar experience for you? Um, we had a uh, – yes, Brisbane was great. And it, it sort of worked out that, you know, the Tigers were looking in a little bit different direction. So um, I took the opportunity to go somewhere else. And I actually started playing basketball in Queensland. So I felt like a bit of a full circle to finish up. Then my parents live on the Gold Coast. So I hadn't seen them for such a long time um, on a regular basis. So when the opportunity came along to go to Brisbane, I thought, you know what, let's try it. My wife said, do whatever you want. And I said, okay, we're going. And then she was like, what? <laughs> so <laughs> they to be like that. That was an uh, interesting conversation after that. But anyway, so I lived in the Goldie and travelled 82Ks to training every day. Up the on M1. The freeway. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I was at the Rabina Golf Course, so I had one roundabout, drive up there, one set of lights, in the Suncorp Stadium. So our first year, we had like a, an all-star team that stuck all these players together. Didn't quite gel. Lost a couple of players, brought a couple of new players in. Our, my second year there was fantastic. We we had a really good blend of um, experience from my behalf, youth, athleticism, all sorts of things there. And we ended up winning 23 of our last 24 games. And we won the final game here. We played against the Melbourne Tigers here in Melbourne and won that. So that was my final game. So it was sort of like, well... Sort of like a good way to finish. I was 38 years of age. You win your last game on your, you know, home team sort of court from being for the Tigers for so long. So it was sort of a great ending. And, um, yeah, like I said, to win so many games in a row. We we had a a great bunch of people up there. Really enjoyed my time in Brisbane. Um, Yeah, and so I thought it was a really good full stop. And you were happy to go? You were done? No, no, I wanted to play. I wanted to play. (laughs) Did you? Yeah, yeah. You always wanted to play. Um, But... My wife, she said, no, I'm going back to Melbourne. So I was like, you know what? 
maybe I should stop. I think I would have kept on going, would have tried, because we all want to go forever. Yeah. But I think, like I said, I think it was a good full stop. And I think it's good to go out a little bit hungry. Not yeah. too much, just a little bit. You know, when you want that little bit of extra dessert. Much better to go maybe, one year too early than one year too late. Yeah, but also but when you're ready. You yeah. know, I see a lot of people... I remember when Matty Lloyd was retiring and my father-in-law was sitting down talking and he goes, oh, no, he should retire because I want to remember him as a one-club player. Mm. But I'm saying, but I've got to wake up in the morning, so I'm not worried about what you're thinking. I've got to be content in my own mind. So if Matty wanted to go to one extra club and play something for one year and he felt good about it, I say you should do it because Mm. you're the person who has to wake up every day and feel it. So for me, when I retired, yeah, I was a little bit envious. I wanted to keep on playing, but I think it was the right time. And now my body's falling apart. It was definitely the right time. But like I said, you want to, we all, our mind and our body are not quite connected sometimes as as an athlete. We always talk about, you know, the knee or the back. It's not my back. It's just the knee on this body that I'm using. So, yeah, yeah, but it was time. Well, you talked about footy again there with Matty Lloyd. And I teased the fact that we're going to talk a little bit about footy and the bloodlines in footy. And we'll do that when we come back with our final segment on the other side of the break with Mark Bradkey on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll wrap things up with Mark in a moment. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Our final segment with Mark Bradkey on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Now, you've mentioned your beautiful wife. I've had the privilege of sitting beside her in the commentary box a few times, Nicole. Provis, as she was. Not Provis, Provis. Yeah, that's correct, right. isn't it? Yes, that is correct. Yes. Very good. And uh, it's been a most enjoyable experience sitting with Nick. Uh, she's great company. Um, but you two have uh, come up with a potential footballer. Yes, it um, sort of came out of the blue um, about this time last year. Uh, my son, Austin, who... Um, uh, was a footy slash basketballer all through his uh, juniors, as you do. And then um, uh, when he was 15, he made the under-16 Victorian uh, state basketball team. So uh, they tell the players, okay, just concentrate on the basketball. Don't want to get injured. The championships were sort of mid-year. So he stopped playing footy then, concentrated on the basketball for that year. They came second. They got runner-up to uh, uh, Queensland in the under-16s. Played a couple more games at the end of the um, uh, home and away season in 2015. Um, but uh, he goes to Halebury College. So um, a lot of the kids play school footy. And if you play school footy, you're not supposed to play club footy. So all his best mates, like the Kings, the, the Max and Ben King, yeah. who uh, uh, um, you know first rounders for this year, they went and played school footy. And Austin wanted to play school basketball. So... Just the way it sort of worked out, he didn't play footy because his mates didn't play footy. So he concentrated on the basketball, made the uh, under-18 state team again as a top agent, which they won against Queensland again, Queensland North. Um, And so that finished. um, And then he was like, oh, where's my pathway now? He sort of... When you get to under-18, he wasn't good enough to go into the seniors with the um, basketball. You get a little bit lost, I think. So anyway, um, last about this time last year, I got a call from the Saints. I think the Saints were the first ones. They said, oh, has Austin ever thought about playing footy? And I goes, well, he used to play footy, you know. He goes, well, can we do some testing? So went along, did all the ruck testing, did the, the time trials, did all this stuff here. So 
But then gradually we had more and more phone calls. So I was getting phone calls all the time. And I was like, all right, what's this category B? So I, I did a bit of study, a bit of a work there. And as a father, I just took all the phone calls and did my due diligence. And whoever asked us to go along to try out with, we said, yep, we'd love to come along and try out. So we ended up going to um, seven uh, Melbourne-based AFL clubs that we've had, had trials at. And then actually two called really late as well. So we had nine of the 10 clubs in Melbourne asking about him. So why? I don't know. Uh, is it because the Kings are so highly touted and he was, he's been best mates for them since year one? Is it because Halebury have produced so many good players? They had um, seven players drafted in last year's uh, AFL draft. Matty Lloyd's the coach out there. But Austin mm. hasn't played under Matty. Austin hasn't played school footy. So so Austin, anyway, he's a, a player who hasn't played for three years. So come um, uh, November 1st, he's allowed to sign a Category B contract. So some people say, oh, it was deliberate. You took him out of footy so he could um, be a Category B. No, not, not the case. So, um, But has it worked out? So um, this year, um, after the school holiday, so what was that, in April, uh, we said, all right, you've got to make a decision. You're doing year 12. We don't want this dragging on. Find out who wants to uh, uh, put an offer, a contract to you. We're not negotiating. You're just let me, tell us what you want, how many years, whatever you do like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we went from there. So we had um, um, four contracts put in front of him, and then he, he narrowed it down. So uh, we've been um, lifelong Melbourne supporters, so I made him Barry from Melbourne, so he's seen a lot of pain. Um, and my wife said, you only want to go to Melbourne because you support them. I was like, no, no. So we had a look at it all, and we looked at the list and look at the age and look at how they've developed and who's the ruckman there. So um, he decided Melbourne, you know, you've got people like Max Gorn, who's uh, obviously elite uh, in that department, and you see the uh, coaches in Jade Rawlings and Troy Chaplin mm. and all these guys. And I actually did – they asked – they put a call in last October – so I thought, oh, they're calling about Austin. They actually called about me. They wanted me to go and help out a little bit. So I'm like, really? Um, I was really good at under-14s, but I hadn't played much since, <laughs> like none. So anyway, they had a few tools. They were just talking about body weight and positioning and things like a little few basketball things. So I was lucky enough that I went up to about six or seven sessions. So I could to see what the players were like and what they do and appreciate how hard they run and, and how difficult it is pre-season. So um, uh but then once so I said, Austin, you make the decision. So he 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 put the uh, he put it down and said, okay, I'm going to go there. So he's uh, he's really excited. He's uh, been doing a lot of I'm doing a lot of kicking. <laughs> he's doing running. He's doing weights. He's uh, uh, and he's got what another six weeks or so of school, and then next day, preseason, away you go. One question about Melbourne, Mark, yep. and this is related to your sporting background and it's yep. related to how Melbourne exited the final series. They had yep. a great year, but it finished in the way that they didn't want it to finish. Yep. As, a, as a sportsman who's had his share of disappointments, what do you want to see from those players? Do you want that feeling to stick in their guts for the next 12 months or do you want them to wipe it away and start again? No, I think you want it to stick and it will stick. I think when you lose so badly, it hurts you've got the whole game to think about it. And I think it's better if you lost at a kick out for the siren, that is more emotional, I think, for you. Whereas this is a realisation to say, okay, it's always going to be tough going to Perth. You know, they're up against any team going to Perth over there with that crowd uh, and perfect conditions to play in. So nice warm weather. But it's going to hurt a lot. And I think that's what you want. You, you know, every time they wake up in the morning, they'll be thinking about it. You know, 
it won't be to say, oh, it'll be like, no, I've got to get a training. I've got to do this. You know, I won't eat the chocolate like I do all the time. You know, <laughs> you'll you have that extra motivation. And because they they did have that little wobble in the middle of the season, where they were playing well and then have a little wobble, then they bounce back. So I think all those things are po- uh, will be a positive for next year. Obviously, extremely frustrated now. But, I, th- yeah, I, I think they'll use it as really good motivation. One final question. Uh, how would you classify the Bradkey household? Because there's the strong basketball influence, there's the strong tennis influence, and now there's the strong football influence. Which one of the three is the dominant one at the moment? Well, my eldest, Austin, does walk around the house saying, I'm the man of the house, you know. <laughs> so he takes his shirt off. I'm like, come on, mate. <laughs> Put it back on. So um, uh, uh, good personalities. There, there's, a, there's a lot of... Trash talking, you know, um, it's a combination. My wife won't like this, but it's football and basketball, you know. Um, tennis, you know, there's another room at the front, so the tennis goes up the front <laughs> a bit there, and then um, we're down the back with the basketball, and the, the young guys got Fortnite on. So um, we, uh, yeah, it's it's the the banter is very good. Uh, we we as parents keep on trying to tell Austin, do not underestimate what it takes. You, you've been very lucky to have an opportunity to train and play, but nothing is given. You've got to work really hard. So we hone it in every day. Don't slacken off. Don't take it for granted because not many people have a very long AFL sporting career, AFL career, whatever it is, very short. Make the most of your opportunities. Don't sit back and, you know, potentials. I I hate the word potential because it means you haven't fulfilled what you've got there. So I'd rather be a battler who worked above his his weight to to achieve. just be a really good listener. Listen to all your coaches. Listen to your teammates. Don't think you know everything. Ask a question if you have to. Um, and just be be early to training, work hard, do a little bit extra. Yeah, all those sort of things. Just trust the process and trust your teammates. Regardless of what label you put on the household, it's a magnificent sporting household. And maybe there's another chapter to be added with young Austin. But you talked about the fact that sporting careers don't last a long time. Yours d- did. It probably seemed like it was pretty quick, but it was a decorated one with all of those awards and all of the places around the world where you applied your trade. It's been great to sit here for the last hour and have a chat to you about it, Mark. Thanks for coming in and best to Nick. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Mark Brakey joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We will celebrate the life of another great Australian sportsperson. Same time next week. Hope you can join us then. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91